Hello and welcome to episode 204 of WB40, the weekly podcast with me, Matt Valentine, Chris Weston and Olivia Gamblin. So once again, we find ourselves on the merry ship that is WB40. Chris, we are well and truly now ensconced here in the UK in the season of autumn or fall for our overseas listeners. How's it been? How's the last seven days been for you? I thought you were going to say in the season of consequences. We appear to be in the consequences season in the UK right now. But I've got fuel in my car. I've got food in the in the in the fridge. So, you know, another week's existence is pretty much guaranteed and for that I can be nothing but grateful. It's uh, it's been a very interesting week really. It's very busy and I wish I could say I wish I could say there was anything particularly outstanding. I've certainly work-wise I've been doing some research on behalf of a customer and in fact some of our wb40 sort of pals helped me out with this one because it was uh it was a fairly innocent query really where somebody asked me about managing office 365 as a product rather than as a like a service management thing and that's kind of i know that's a fairly boring it way of thinking about things but I thought it was interesting, and uh, we I had a chat with Dave Floyd, who'd got some background on it, and Lisa Remus introduced me to Heather Force, who was also excellent. So that was nice. It was nice to to pick the hive mind and and get some uh, information there. And then we've been gearing up for our summit at work. We've got this uh, CIO summit, which is happening tomorrow, tomorrow, the day after we record this, and that's. Always exciting as we try to corral all of the virtual speakers into a place where they're actually going to be there on the day. In fact, something that happened, was it last week? Maybe it was last week, maybe it was the week before. We had a, a session with Marcus Brown of this parish. Ah, uh, to, indeed. To talk, talking about how we do online events and online presentations and all of that kind of thing because he's a bit of a maestro. And uh, one of the things that Marcus has been quite keen on for a while is you should record everything. Record, 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 right? Stop worrying about the spontaneity and the immediacy because that's not what you're involved in. This is a production. It should be. And and there are some people who agree with that and some people who think otherwise. And, and I'm kind of ambivalent, but I absolutely see where he's coming from. This is the kind of time where I wish we'd recorded everything because it would just be done. Then. We'd either <laughs> know that we'd got it or, or we, we haven't. We wouldn't be in the situation where you're still waiting for sign-off from a company before somebody can open their mouth. And, you know, you're... 12 hours to go so yeah it's exciting the, the magic of live events yeah, exactly. online I, I, it isn't something i get involved in very often other than just to turn up and spout off so you know once a year is enough for me that's good and and you've managed to get fuel which i think is apparently it's all been solved in the in the midlands is that is that the case that you're able to be able to get petrol and diesel Yes. Without any uh, interruption. Well, you, there was no petrol at the station I went to the other day, so maybe. But fuel is going to be the thing that drives us for the next, you know, as, as, as we head further into the, the, the spiral of, of doom, then fuel, anything will be fuel. Like an old bed will be fuel, right? Fuel is what, what we'll, 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 we'll be looking for at all times. You know, you'll be driving past something or probably walking past something and you'll, and you'll think, mm, fuel, I'm having that. So that's a, yeah. um, you know, it's just part of our existence now. I think it does feel. I mean, it's all gone a bit Mad Max, basically, isn't it? This is this is the forward-facing global Britain is is basically framed by an Australian and Tina Turner. It's not out of the question. Yeah, there we go. Anyway, Olivia, you, you are not having to put up with the sheer madness as the formerly United Kingdom. Probably not as mad, but I'm out in San Francisco, and we're in the middle of our Indian summer, so we finally have the warm weather here, and I'm discovering this is my first time I've spent 
well, the Indian summer here up in San Francisco proper. And I'm looking out my window right now at this crazy layer of fog that sits right along the ocean. So I'm learning how to ride my bike down the hill into a whole nother climate in about five minutes. So it's been a fun, <laughs> it's been a fun week. We've also had a couple big projects with work. We're launching a magazine. We delivered a project. We started a new client. It's, it's one of those, it was one of those weeks where I turned my head and I blinked too many times and I was behind. We'll talk a bit more about some of that work in the last week, uh, a little later in the program, but yeah, that sounds, I, I just like the idea of warmth. It's definitely, it's definitely got to the point now here where it is no longer summer Indian or otherwise. So it's, it's now bracing ourselves for what is the delight that is the British winter. And uh, so you, have you not been in San Francisco that long? No, actually, it's only about two months now. I grew up right outside of San Francisco, but just recently moved back for uh, temporarily for some work. So enjoying rediscovering, we'll say. I haven't lived here for about 10 years, so it's it's familiar yet unfamiliar in some very funny ways. Oh, what sorts of things? Well, I'm learning. I think I picked up a habit in social situations while living in Europe to ask people how they feel about things. My, my natural question, my actual, my natural follow up question of Oh, how's your week? How do you feel about it? In Europe is a very simple, that's that's how conversations normally go in social situations. Not here. Now I've noticed when I'm in social situations, and I ask how someone feels, I get this look of like, are, are am I being watched? Am I being recorded? What? Why are you asking me this? What, should, are you going to tell my mother? So I'm learning the old social habits that I, I guess are buried somewhere deep in there. But I'm learning also that Europeans are much more Expressive emotionally, and Americans are, are skeptic of any type of emotion. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. It, it, it's almost sort of counter to some, certainly some of the stereotypes of West Coast America, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's still fun out here. I think people are much more relaxed, but it's, it's more of a high-level conversation. It's not necessarily talking about feelings, but more about events and, well, I'm in the sunset area of San Francisco. So right in the middle of, of surfer kingdom. So usually something about the waves we're talking. <laughs> so that must be similar to you then, Matt, uh, in Teddington uh, near the lock. Absolutely. Yes. The, 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 the stand up paddle boarders who now seem to, I went for a walk, a cycle ride actually down by the Thames earlier in uh, the weekend. And uh, yeah, the number of stand up paddle boards there are now on the Thames exceeds the number of boats and possibly wildlife. It's quite remarkable. The things are taking over. And uh, that probably was the highlight of the week. I've had a cold. I'd really forgotten how much I dislike having a cold because throughout the whole of the pandemic, where we've been locked down and not actually being able to transmit germs to anybody, I haven't had one. And then I get one and it's horrible. So that kind of shaped my week in a disproportionate way. And I had a fall which is a deeply disturbing thing because it makes me just feel really old. You only have managed... a fall if you're, if you're old and decrepit. If you're in your you, 90s, you fall yeah, over no. if you're young. I fell over. You yeah, know, I, 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 I had an incident with an outdoor table, a, what I would claim is an almost hidden metal bar, and the inability to stand up and then hit the ground at quite a velocity. And I, yeah, and then that basically just saw me into the cold and I couldn't work out which bit was aches because of bruising and which bits were aches because of the cold. It's... <laughs> Oh, this is what the future brings, isn't it? It's like little snapshots of what it will be like in 10 years' time. It's just terrifying. But uh, yeah, that that really is like dispatches from the front line of somebody in their early 50s. My goodness. No, it's, it's terrible. Happen. In fact, last year, I think it was last year, or, or I think it was maybe 18 months ago, I, it was almost something that you could have scripted. And I'm just glad nobody saw me because 
I was painting and I managed to stand in the in the painting without and and then go down a step onto a very a very hard so I fell quite away basically just like that just just like from from vertical to horizontal in one and lay on the ground covered in paint with lots of and and but the rugby world cup was on at the time and I'm just I was thinking to myself well, hey, you know what it can't be as bad as those guys feel at the end of the game I'm I'm okay I'm a big boy but I can tell you what I was it, it was knocked me about for about two weeks but i didn't feel like i'd had a fall you see matt yeah i'd I'd tripped over and fallen you had the advantage yeah but you did yours in private and 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 you know but for the lack of unethically placed video cameras you would have you know until now got away with it but i did it in front of two other people including my boss so you know just so many levels so many levels of which that was um just unpleasant. But there we go. Anyway, so with that, if we can make it through, and who knows, given the performance in the last seven days, whether we will or not, uh, I think we should press on with uh, our discussion tonight. So let's crack on. So at the beginning of the year, when my then energy company eventually managed to get my smart meter to work, because they hadn't installed it, somebody else had installed it, so it took them a year to be able to get the thing activated. They started sending me bills electronically, and they had a breakdown on those bills of how I was using our power. And it would tell me about how it was a mixture of heating and lighting and entertainment systems and washing. And, and the list went on, and it got actually quite detailed. And digging into that a bit, so I suddenly realised that A, from very, very slim bits of data, so the, the, the smart meters in uh, UK homes, I think, only poll every 30 minutes. So they're giving how much electricity and gas is being consumed 48 times a day. And combining that data plus aggregated data plus statistical modelling plus, no doubt, some sort of AI machine learning voodoo, French-owned state energy provider was able to tell what was going on in my house. And at that point, I started to think, this is a bit of a concern. And actually, do I want my energy company to know that sort of detail about what goes on in the house? And then put that into the context of uh, the work that I do at the moment in the organization that I do. What might happen if we start to put connected sensor type devices into people's homes? What might inadvertently we start to learn about how they live and what they do that we might want to know that they might not want to know? And that experience was one of the things that crystallized um, getting in touch with you, Olivia. I think it was a recommendation through Twitter, which is where all the best recommendations happen. And what eventually turned into a project in conjunction with another housing association, Platform Housing, and being able to do some work to be able to help us to be able to understand how we should think about the ethics of decision making when it comes to investing in new technology and to not just do things just based on cost benefit analysis or it being legal because as the, the old saying goes just because it's legal doesn't mean you should do it and so we're going to talk a bit on the show this week about what we've done how that all sat together but i think just as a, as a starting point what would be really handy would just to be able to get a i guess a, a bit of a definition about what what is meant by ethics? Because it's a term often used, but I'm not sure necessarily consistently understood. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I usually, whenever I give a talk or I speak um, in public, it starts with me asking the audience, how do you define ethics? I have to say I've gotten some very entertaining answers throughout the years, but I always start there because people bring together different definitions. They are often influenced by what they're seeing in media or what they 
bring from their own workplace. So I've heard everything from, well, ethics is is uh, subjective and it uh, doesn't matter and we don't need it to this is objective truth and it is the golden standard and we must follow to ethics is what I use to tell me who to run over with. And then there's usually a comment about Hitler at some point. I don't know why, but that always seems to come up. <laughs> Hopefully, I, I, I wish I could give better comment there, but it's, it's, it's one that I'm often faced with. But I always answer with ethics is the study of right and wrong. If I'm coming from, if I've got my philosopher hat on, it's the study of right and wrong. It's understanding what is right, what is wrong, what actions constitute right and good actions, what, what constitutes a, a bad or wrong action, and so on. But that, again, is a very philosophical definition. If I've got my more industry hat on and when I'm, when I'm in with, with clients, my definition of ethics is it's a decision-making tool. You know, just as as a data scientist will use, will infer from, from data sets different information, different understanding of what's going on in the world, I do the same as an ethicist. I look at what's happening in that situation and I infer from that the moral values at play. They're kind of these high-level abstract values, what they are actually doing in, in a very set, concrete situation. So ethics, again, it's the study of right and wrong, but when we're looking specifically at technology and the use of ethics in technology, it's really just a very powerful decision-making tool. And is it an absolute thing or is it relative? Is it something that is as much about context? It is. Yes and no. To give you a fair warning, I am a virtue ethicist by philosophical trade. So I have a bit of a, a few different assumptions that you may not always run across. But from my perspective and from my experience as well, we have the relative parts and those are contextual. Those are the, the contextual decisions that we're making. That's that is why it's very infuriating when you ask when you ask an ethicist, oh, how do I how do I apply transparency? And you're always met with the answer of, well, wh what's your context? What's your situation? It's because we need that context to be able to apply what is actually the objective truth. So transparency is is less so in terms of it doesn't necessarily need a context to be a value. It can be a value on its own, but how it's applied, we need the context for that. And it's that's where the, where the relevance comes into play. And that's where you need concrete concrete situations to be able to come to, to give proper answers to. And ethics in the context of technology, why is this now becoming an issue for particularly non-technology companies where it really hasn't been in the past? I love that question because I'm, I'm hoping that a technology company will listen and go, well, of course, ethics is important. That's a whole nother another hill that I'm dying on. But uh, for companies that aren't necessarily a technology company, it doesn't mean that they're not using technology. Nowadays, technology is a part of our everyday life. We have it in our hands. We have it in our kitchens. We have it in our homes. We have it everywhere. And so there's no, this sounds very doomsday, there's no escaping it. There's always going to be that technology there. And how we're using it, that's the important part. So for companies that aren't necessarily technology companies, they still will procure, we'll say, we'll, they'll still use technology in different ways. And the assumption that, well, it's fine, the technology that I'm using has been pre-approved or it's gone through different checks and, checks and balances on, on the other company that I'm bringing in is not necessarily the safest bet, we'll say. Because that company that you could be purchasing the technology from or bringing in their technology, you may not be aligned in terms of values. And so 
what you'll notice is down the line as you're using this piece of technology, you're getting different results that you didn't expect and weren't necessarily in agreement with because of that value misalignment. So that's why with tech, that's why with companies that aren't necessarily technology based, it's still very important. It's if you're misaligned in terms of values, you will see a discrepancy in terms of what you're expecting and what you're what you're receiving out of your technology. Oh, that's really interesting because you, one of the things I've been noticing over the last few years with collaboration technology is that from my experience, from what I have seen, from being spending time working in one technology company and working very closely with many others, and also seeing how technology gets used in other organizations, there are an awful lot of cultural assumptions that are built within uh, collaboration software that are born of the fact that collaboration software producing companies think that every other company is like a collaboration software producing company. So Microsoft think the world is like Microsoft, Slack think the world is like Slack and, and, and so on. And that leads to some weird effects because you have, I think probably the, the, the one where this, this all sort of clicked into place for me when I was doing some work in the government department and there were some senior civil servants who worked for ministers they were private secretaries and they worked for the same minister and the idea that documents should only be created by the person who is creating the document rather than being able to be associated with somebody else and that only one person could identify as the identity of one person which is kind of hard into the whole microsoft office stack now was an anathema to them because they, their view was how on earth am I able to be able to make sure that the document looks like it needs to be before I can put it in front of the minister if it's going to put my name on all the edits? And from a, you know, a Microsoft view, that's completely, you know, confounding to them because they don't understand that that's not how every organization, you know, they, not every organization works like they do. For the civil servants, they could not understand how anybody could think that everybody's name would need to be associated to everything that happens because that's not the way that... The, the, and, and those two worldviews are completely conflicting, but also completely valid in their own. So then when you add in something like, what's this, is it Viva, the, the new Microsoft tools that sit on top of the back end of Office and analyze it for statistics and data and stuff about who you are and how you do and who you interact with then some really weird stuff starts to happen because the representation of the data all might be good but there's cultural context within that that means that you could suddenly expose something that means something completely different to what you think it does but because your organization is not like the organization that created does that make sense in terms of thinking about that that um, yeah yeah exactly and in in that case it's probably very frustrating from a a, an employee's standpoint to have to go through, well, this, this just doesn't make sense. This technology isn't fitting with our work culture. But where it starts to become more of an ethically laden, and I'm not saying sometimes work cultures do have that ethical latency to them, is when we start to see this, the discrepancy of actual cultures. So bringing it into a different field outside of Microsoft, but bringing it into a different field. When it comes to emotion technology, so emotive tech. In Western cultures, we frown when we're upset and we're much more expressive in terms of our more negative emotions. So you can tell when we're sad, you can tell when we're mad, it's all on our face. Asian cultures smile. So if the company is, des is designing uh, emotive tech based off of Western cultures, then they're going to get one result of, well, the person's frowning, they're, they're, they're upset. 
they're smiling, they're happy. As soon as that technology is lifted and placed into an Asian culture, it's going to break and it's not going to work. And depending on what that technology was designed for, depends on the level of consequence and harm that comes from it. But someone in the Asian culture is going to smile and they may be upset, but the technology is telling them that they're happy and that can cause problems from there. So as you were describing, Matt, that was a work cultural difference, which again, there can be ethical components to that, pulling it out and making it even more obvious in terms of geographical cultures and um, more geographical cultures with the example of emotion tech, then we start to see why that value alignment is so important and why it's perfectly valid to have completely different values, so to speak, or different exhibitions of the same of the same value. There's different ways to show the same value. Uh, that is completely fine. It's just recognizing that there are differences there. Isn't one of the questions that we often find, Olivia, when we're, I think technology is one of those areas that where we can suddenly collect a lot of data and we can we can process it quite quickly and therefore the consequences can be be beyond our imagining really it's like just because we can do something it doesn't mean that we necessarily should and it doesn't mean that we understand the consequences when we do them and i i mean i've worked in lots of different areas and i worked in criminal justice for a while dealing with probation and and, and offenders and things like that and one of the things that we had to do, one of the things I had to do, was think about how we could use technology more effectively to to do that job better. We had some good ideas and we had some bad ideas, but certainly since then I've seen technology used in some truly no, just 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 the worst way to use technology in order to make predictions about behaviour, for example, where you might be able to say, well, I I can see in the, in the case A, B, and C this all works out and a little bit like your cultural differences issue there's no way you can test to a to, to a, such a degree that can that can make a decision about something which could infringe on somebody's liberty for example but we do it in the pursuit of efficiency in the pursuit of justice in the pursuit of protecting the public all this kind of thing and what I find really interesting is the idea that you sort of pull this out and break it down into steps so that it's more it's more clear about the decisions you're making because that's not how we've done it in the past. We've put something together and it goes through a few checks and balances, as you say, and you assume that along the way, so if something's not right, then somebody will go, yeah, what about? But that doesn't always happen, does it? And we saw an issue with Microsoft talking about collaboration tools. We saw... Ah, uh, just a few weeks ago, maybe 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 earlier in the pandemic, and they released some sort of productivity numbers for Microsoft Teams to say, "Oh, by the way, you know, here's how you can see how your team are behaving." And and it rang loads of alarm bells with about about privacy, around you know what are you really measuring? You know how what use is this? Because and you know we all know managers that would would take that data and not be able to interpret it well, but just use it in order to achieve some fairly blunt managerial objectives. So I find this idea of pulling it apart a bit like a bit like a strategy really where you say, okay, this is what we're trying to achieve. These are our objectives. This is what we want to get to. These are the things we can do. So if it aligns with our strategy, we're going to do it. And if it doesn't, then we're not. And this is a bit like that really, isn't it? You're trying to pull this out and say, you know, do, what what are our values and how does how does this align with what we're trying to achieve? Is that yeah. sensible? Absolutely, Chris. That's why I said 
earlier that ethics is a decision-making tool. Essentially, think of it, all of our technology and our actions and really everything in life, but our technology specifically exists on a spectrum. You have worst case scenario, best case scenario. And using ethics allows us to understand, based on our values, where our technology is on that spectrum. Is it closer towards a doomsday dumpster fire, everything's gone wrong and it's causing harm? Or is it closer towards this is the best case scenario, all of our stakeholders are benefiting and we feel like we're putting out a strong technology? Where are we on that spectrum, speaking from technology perspective? And then what decisions need to be made to get us closer to that best case scenario? I like to remind people as well that at the base of everything, at the base of ethics is logic. And logic is also at the base of computational mathematics. It's the same root in both of these. Just one is mathematic based that, and ethics is critical thinking based. And so it is the same process of dissecting the argument, dissecting the components that exist and being able to go in on a such a such a minute level to understand, well, this decision is causing these effects, kind of like the butterfly effect. This decision, if we tweak it just a little bit, can actually have a huge impact on the other end. And it's really going down to that granular level, which sounds counterintuitive considering ethics is the decision-making tool that keep, keeps us rooted in the bigger picture, keeps us rooted in understanding where the technology sits in the bigger perspective. As you're saying, Chris, understanding why the technology exists in the first place, what it does, what, what is its purpose. Uh, you can have really good ideas and you can have really crappy ideas, but the whole, the whole purpose of ethics is to be able to answer that why. Why is this why is this a good idea or why is this a good piece of technology? What is it actually doing at the end of the day? Is it just efficient for efficiency's sake? That gets us nowhere. That doesn't answer my why. That answers my what, maybe my how, but not my why. So a, a little, little bit like um, Matt's example earlier on about the, about the uh, energy meter being able to figure out what's going on in the house. I've got like a, I've got a Fitbit on my wrist and who knows, right, what that data could tell about what I'm doing right now, what I did last week, what drugs I to took, what uh, activities I got involved in. If you if you get enough data, you could, you could infer all sorts of things. And of course, we buy these things and we wear Fitbits and we put Alexas and Lord knows what in our houses and we just kind of trust that that's, that's okay and these people aren't going to take this data and use it different, use it for bad reasons or or make it available for other people to do that wouldn't it be wouldn't it be better if they were to share this kind of ethical decision making their own decision making tools to say this is how we make this decision when we when we create this technology this is why you should trust this do they do that does anybody do that not generally i'm trying to get more people to do that <laughs> that is part of part of my mission is to be able to it's it's kind of a play on transparency of let me be able to con communicate to you the values that I hold and how I prioritize them because you can infer from that what my decisions are going to be how I'm going to a, when it comes down to a critical moment which am I going to go left or, or am I going to go right if you know where I'm coming from in terms of my values and my understanding and the prioritization within that you can most likely infer what my decision is going to be out of out on the back end of that. I wonder if we couldn't, given enough information about the decisions that people make, infer their ethics in the same way. Absolutely. What I can, what I often do actually with friends, not on purpose, I don't play therapist with them, but I seem to be the person that everyone goes to of, 
is this okay? And I get to play the speaking as an ethicist. Yes, this is okay. Or maybe look at this way. But I, oftentimes with friends, I'll sit down and I'll listen to something that's troubling them. And I understand from my friends, because I've been around them long enough, what they value and listening to what they value and listening to their actions and seeing how they carry out. And when something's bothering them and they're talking to me about it, I can sit there and go, well, this might actually be in conflict. This sounds like this, this value. So let's say honesty is really important to you. And what you're doing in this situation, the decision that you're thinking of making is not necessarily aligned with being honest. Are you sure you want to make that decision? So you can reverse engineer almost these values. When we're looking at societal values, that's really what we're doing. We're reverse engineering. What do we value as a society? And what are those high level principles, those high level values? Do you think we um, have a problem at the moment that somehow technology is seen as uh, neutral or as writer? And, that, you know, in the same way that we've heard a lot of people talking about how we should be following the science as if the science is a single thing that has only one view. Similarly, but if it's in the machine, if the computer says so, if the oracle, if the sage, if the Delphi, you know, I mean, it, 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 you know, they've deliberately named all those things after these things to be able to, you know, but that there's a, a a cultural belief about the rightness of stuff in machines that actually gets in the way of us making ethical decisions. Absolutely. I'm also now going to refer to it from now on as the science. I haven't heard that before, but I think it's really entertaining. The science told me. No. So to that, to that point, from my perspective, what it comes down to is a misunderstanding of what is intelligence. So when it comes to our technology, when it comes to AI, machine learning, everything, we're, we're, we're pattern matching, we're looking for patterns within the data sets, we're looking for correlations, we're looking for, well, mathematical computation. That's, we're looking for logical reasoning, but logical reasoning based on numbers and data points. It's not, that isn't all that intelligence is. And I think that's where some of this distrust comes in is we focused in so much on numbers. If it's, if we can prove it with data, then it must be true, then it has to be real because that's what we can see. But there are other factors when it comes to reasoning and logic and, and, and all of that. I mean, um, think about emotions, think about that gut instinct. We as humans still use those to, as reasoning inputs, even though we can't see it. And that leads us towards answers and solutions. That's still a part of our intelligence. It's not necessarily our logic-based intelligence and our logic-based reasoning as our technology is, but it's still part of our intelligence. And so when logic-based reasoning, when that computational reasoning is the only way that we view intelligence, that that is the end-all be-all, then yes, it does get in our way of being able to trust ourselves that, well, maybe there's more to that story. For example, you can say that, yes, if it's in the data, it's there. Like if it's, if it's in the data, then it must be true. Well, how, who labeled the data? Where did that come from? Where did that first original understanding come from? Didn't come from the data before. That was a person labeling the data set. Where, what reasoning did that person have? I can probably guarantee you they weren't looking at other data sets to bring in more data into, to label that data set. So there's more to the picture than just, than just what, what the science says. So what sort of process is it that you you work with clients to go through to be able to take them from a point of not thinking about ethics or not thinking in a consistent or structured way to being able to do so? So we always start with 
something well we usually nickname it doomsday but it's essentially creating an open space for people to come and voice their concerns their concerns their hopes everything around the existential questions that really don't have space in the normal work work day it could be that these that the people that we're working with that the company that we're working with has a very encouraging culture to discuss these issues but they're very big high level questions and half the time most of the time they don't really have relevance to the nitty-gritty details of admin work and so by creating that initial space of opening up time and an environment where people feel comfortable to voice what's on their mind and what's what is their concern is the first step because then all of a sudden everyone in that well zoom room right now but everyone in that room starts to feel oh okay i'm i'm not crazy i do have questions and so does my neighbor and so does my boss and so does my my subordinate like we have questions and these are natural questions and so it's beginning that discovery as the first step of well this is it's not a place of judgment it's not saying you're a bad person you're making wrong decisions it's it's a place of curiosity of what are we actually creating? How does this figure fit into the bigger picture? Or what are we doing? How does this fit into the bigger picture of our mission? From there, it's then digging into, well, what are your actual values? And if you sit down with people, they generally can come up with at least a preliminary list of what do they value? At the end of the day, what matters? We as humans naturally do this in our lives. We'll do this as well in our workplace. We'll do this in, in the context of our technology. Once we start to have that understanding, then it's really sitting down and going, okay, well, here's your high level, high level example. Let's use this case study that you're stuck on. How does this value help you make a decision throughout this process? And we break down, well, here are your deciding factors. Here, here are the decision-making uh, factors and taking in this, this value of privacy. Does this help you at this point go left or right? It's probably going to, it'll leave you left. Okay, well then. Let's go to the next decision-making factor. And it's going down to that granular level once those high-level values have been, have been uncovered. I like to say as well that the right question placed at the right time is really all you need half the time when it comes to ethics. We as humans in our day-to-day -day lives, we, will, we have ethical reasoning capacity. We are moral beings. We are moral agents. We naturally go through this, this logical process but we do it subconsciously half the time. Most of the time, I would say, we do it subconsciously. And so asking the right question at the right time in the workplace, in the context of technology, forces us to reflect on what is a subconscious decision-making muscle and instead look at it and go, well, I'm gonna strengthen it, first of all, and second of all, I'm gonna figure out how to use it properly instead of just letting it run in the background. So it's, it's, it's bringing it to light. And again, the right question at the right time is sometimes all you need. Do we, do we really understand the different things that we should have an ethical conversation about do you think though because sometimes we have a we have a question about data and about privacy and about and a lot of these things are driven by regulation and law but you know we can use technology for so many things we can use it to we can use it to be a gatekeeper to certain things for example we can use it to persuade people of things that maybe we want them to do or we would prefer that they do you know to buy what we want to buy or to choose a certain uh, product that, that, that we that we have and all of these things have an ethical aspect to them and maybe we don't realize that until it gets until the consequences become clear do you think there are ways that we can understand what the where, where these decision points are even when they're not necessarily 
visible. Yeah, it's part of the process. So on one hand, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to use a couple philosophy terms here real quick. And I love my philosophers, but we weren't very creative in the terms. So it all starts with moral, but there's something called moral imagination, which is our ability to sit and think, if I make this decision at this point, what could that possibly lead to? And you're, you're flexing a moral imagination muscle, we'll say, where I've made the decision to take 20 bucks from my mom's purse without asking her. Well, I can sit there and go, if mom finds out, then I'm in trouble. If mom doesn't find out, then I might get away with it, but I'm gonna sit and feel guilty the entire time, or I could just not take it. And that seems to be the best decision. So in one way, we can have a bit of that preemptive, that preemptive decision-making because of that moral imagination tool where we're able to project into the future potential consequences. Now, in the context of technology, and Chris, you're bringing up a good point here, as our technology is, is developing, there are times where we don't know. We just don't know. We haven't seen it before. We haven't used it before. And that is actually a point where something called moral reflection and moral maturity, see, I told you they were very creative names, but moral <laughs> reflection and moral maturity come into play. And what I mean by that is, as we are developing as a society, we're growing, we're maturing morally. We're understanding more and more in depth what is a good action, what is a bad action, what is a good consequence, what is something to work towards. And that's all supported by moral reflection, which is I've made a decision, I've seen the consequence, and if it's a good consequence, then I'm gonna keep going in that direction or I'm gonna make that same decision again. If, it's, if I see that it's a harmful consequence, then looking back on the decision that led me to that point and making a different decision or changing the decision from there. So that kind of combination is, again, this, these are our normal ethical reasoning muscles. This is, this is our normal reasoning base that we as humans do. Doing it on a technological, doing it in our workplace, doing it in a technology con context is completely possible. It's just bringing it to the surface. It's bringing that, that, those processes, those me mechanisms to light. Uh, and the work that we've done over the last few months, which where we've got to now is we've got a framework with a lot of uh, robust information underpinning it that enables us to essentially in three stages. The first is in a way of being able to assess whether a technology is, is a good idea or not, given the values of the organization. The second part is how you assess potential partners and vendors that you might work with to make sure that there's alignment there. And then the third part is about being able to make sure that you can uh, effectively communicate to your customers or your stakeholders about what it is you are going to be doing it's it's a neat three-step process one of the things i was surprised about i don't know the sheer breadth of people that was involved from your side the creation of that and not in terms of numbers so much as the the different sorts of backgrounds that people you brought together had to be able to create that kind of framework so what are the sorts of people that are working within your network to be able to do this kind of work I call them very cool people. I really, I really love the people that I work with, but I do look for a very specific person to give context. We have verified ethics professionals, again, that work within our network. They are kind of, are kind of like our subcontractors that we work with on client-client basis. We'll match specific expert teams with a client's need. Now, within that network, we actually have about 50 individuals now within our, our, our expert network. Everyone comes from very different backgrounds, both culturally, geographically, academic, intellectually, but everyone has either experience in terms of working, working within an ethics team, working in ethics in terms of academia, 
or they have a passion. They've done some type of research into either one of the values that exist. So we have a lot of experts that uh, do a lot of work in fairness and bias right now. A lot of technical experts in that area. Where on the flip side, we have a good chunk of our humanities experts doing a lot of work right now in privacy and responsibility. It's all these kind of parallels. And by bringing together these experts and being, being, a, being able to bring together people from many different backgrounds, we're able to provide more of a holistic, it's a bigger worldview in a small little Zoom room, but it's having those different perspectives. The one thing that is common throughout everyone within our network, which is having an objective truth throughout that network is quite, is quite a feat considering the breadth, as you were saying, Matt, you've, you've met just a small percentage of them, but you've met a chunk of them now. Everyone within that network has a sense of humility. They have a sense of humility in terms of they understand and value their own expertise, but they respect that it is not the golden standard. They respect the fact that they're working with other people because their partner on a project or the other experts on their team also have something valuable to bring in that they can learn from each other. And so they go in actually really excited to be able to work together because they always come out on the other end knowing I'm gonna learn something completely different that I didn't know before. But it's that open, that it's that humility approaching it going, yeah, I am going to support the team. I'm gonna bring in my expertise, but I'm going to see what it looks like when I'm, when I'm paired with someone else with completely different expertise and what that looks like and what we can pull out of it. And you're starting to use the term ethics as a service. And just tell us a bit more about what, what does that mean? Yeah, so that is a brand new term. It came out February, 2021. It was coined uh, by Digital Catapult. So we can't claim coining it, but we are running with it. But ethics as a service is essentially, think of all of the frameworks and the guidelines and policies that exist in AI ethics or tech ethics in general. It's ethics as a service is actually being able to take those either oftentimes vague or a little too detailed frameworks that don't apply to everyone and customizing them to your needs. So bringing them from something that's generically applicable to actually specifically applicable to your to your set situation. Another component that works alongside of ethics as a service is actually having ethics uh, ethical professionals. So some type of ethics committee or uh, an ethicist to consult with. Because again, think of it as, think of it this way. You're an engineer, you're not doing all that computation in your brain. You are not sitting there running the lines of code. You, you can, that will take forever. And you're not gonna get very far. You offload that onto a computer. You offload the computation onto a computer. And then the computer brings back your answer and you're able to use it and go forward to make decisions off of that. Think of an ethics committee and ethicists as your, your offload for your moral code, so to speak. So you have a question. A lot of these ethical considerations, moral understanding, it takes a lot of brain power. It takes a lot of time and effort to think them through. When you work with a team or when you work with an ethics committee or an ethicist, what you're doing is you're bringing them a question, you're bringing them a challenge, and you're offloading all of that mental computation that needs to happen to think through, again, using moral imagination, but thinking through all the potential consequences. An ethicist will then turn back around and go, okay, well, here, here are your three possible decisions based off of your values. I would suggest that you go in this direction. I would, I would suggest you take this, this decision, but here are the other ones as well. And here, here are the other reasonings behind it. So it's offloading a lot of that mental computation that you have to do in terms of ethics onto someone that's trained to do it, 
trained to do it quickly and trained to do it with efficiency through, through different frameworks. So that's another important component of ethics as a service. But really, at the end of the day, it's, it's providing ethical guidance and advisory at scale. Well, that was extremely interesting and certainly lots of things to think about. So let's have a think about what we're going to be doing this week. But first, Olivia, I'm going to ask you about ethical intelligence and where people can find out more information. No, so you can you can check us out at ethicalintelligence.co. We are actually launching this week, well, this week ahead, we're launching our quarterly digital magazine and our debut issue is actually focused on ethics as a service. So if you're interested in learning more about the topic, we have an issue coming in the next few hours, I guess. So has already come, maybe I should speak in past tense, uh, has already come out uh, and it's all focused on ethics as a service. We've collaborated with a few other ethics firms in the space to provide a curation of research, uh, case studies and best practices in one bite-sized little morning coffee read. You can also find us on Twitter at ethicalai underscore co or LinkedIn at Ethical Intelligence Associates. Those are usually our, our most active channels. Fantastic. So I guess we already know something that's happening to you this week. Olivia, is there anything else going on? Yes, I am planning on trying a new ravioli store. recipe. Not story, recipe. <laughs> I, uh, it is my personal hobby leftover from the pandemic. Is I, I'm learning to experiment with ravioli. So this week, beets are coming back into season. So I'm trying again a new beet stuffing and I need to get the right sauce down. So that is that is my highlight of the week is Wednesday night. I'm, I'm diving into ravioli. Oh, fantastic. I did make pasta once. I, went, I did a pasta making evening with a client and it was great fun and it was very tasty and I've never done it since and I really ought to because it was good. It's a good fun Matt, experience. Yeah, really, really, absolutely. And it was quite messy. I'm not thinking... Pizza dough is my thing about just trying to be able to, and I'm, I'm continuing to experiment. I did one at the weekend. It's all right, not, not perfect. Uh, I did make gyoza once, though. That's quite good. That's it's like the the dough is very different to pasta, even though it's essentially the same ingredients. I don't know quite how they manage it, but I, other than continuing culinary experiments, we've got a a, a leadership offsite where we're going to meet in person at a place that isn't the office. And that's tomorrow. That's going to be entertaining. And preparing for the half-year reviews, because that's what you do when you're in a job in a company with people working for you. So I've got a number of those to get uh, ready and set up. The actual reviews I really enjoy. Getting times in the diaries to be able to do them is the bit that is just living hell, because nobody, of course, has time. So yeah, that's that's the, the joys of my week ahead. How about you? Well, as I said, tomorrow is the uh, CIO Summit, so I'm going to be doing that all day, doing some interviews with, with people and all that jazz. And after that, then it calms down a bit, but I've, we've got to then think about topics for our, uh, our CIO kind of uh, discussion groups and all of that kind of thing. So I've got a fair few things to do, but I'm hoping for a slightly calmer end to the week and so and, and then into the weekend when I can relax and think about what we're going to do uh, this Christmas and into the autumn and all that kind of thing and I've got plan I've got I, mean, I might even be going to sort of Copenhagen in a few weeks time and that'll be interesting you know going to a place that <laughs> that isn't here incredible so yes yeah, some of that to think about but uh, yeah pretty much once I get tomorrow over that's that's most of this week out of the way <laughs> week done by Tuesday I mean what's not to like 
bless you. Good. Olivia, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Matt and Chris. It's been great joining you. And uh, we will be back with episode 205 next week. Thank you for listening to WB40. You can find us on the internet at WB40podcast.com, on Twitter at WB40podcast, and on all good podcasting platforms.